1: Part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to show 283. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Got some news <laughs> this week, yes. A couple of bits of news, but the, the main one is we've been nominated for a Hugo Award. Yes, fourth time. <laughs> and yeah, just uh, that's me. This, I'm not. That's me. Phone hitting me bottle of <laughs> whiskey. Little drinker, little celebration. Actually, <laughs> bloody big drink. I've got such a headache. Oh dear me. But yes, we've been nominated in the fan cast category there. So how how cool is that? thank you everyone that nominated starship Sofa again for a, a hugo award brilliant the other bit of news is there is now a, an audience with what i'm trying to i think it's on I think it is on the 21st of april an audience with in video live as well larry niven jerry Purnell, and gregory benford oh. <laughs> so come along to there's a webinar going on We've got the, actually, now the package is 100 seats for video, which is fantastic. Do you know what I mean? So, if you want to come along to that and see that, Larry Niven, live in video, Jerry Purnell, and Greg Benford, amazing. And I you, what, you know, these guys are kind of the science fiction kind of masters, you know, kind of writing stories about futures and everything. Larry didn't, Niven didn't even have Skype. You <laughs> know, I mean, trying to get them set up to achieve what we're going to do on the on the twenty first is just a hard a hard task. Oh, Skype, Tony? What, uh, no, I haven't got that. I'll have, to, I'll have to I'll have to get someone over to get that on this. <laughs> so so that would be hope. You know, if you can come along, that that would be fantastic. Like I said, the Hugo Award. How cool is that? Amazing. I'll tell you what's coming in the show. We have a looking back at genre history with Amy H. Sturgis. Then we've got a new writer hitting airwaves of Starship Silver, Chris Willitsch with Waiting for a Me Like You. And we've got an interview with Steve Davidson. Steve is the man behind the new launch, revamped Amazing Stories. And we've got a nice interview with there. Just really basically everything, talking about, you know, the, the kind of really the nuts and bolts of Amazing Stories and how he came about it and how, you know, what his plans are. So that's a great interview. And like I say... I'll put a link on to all these you know, sites so you can kind of go from there over to, to uh, you whoever. Know, I want you to go with Amazing Stories and Steve's site as well, just to say hello. And that's actually where Diane is now blogging over there. Diane Searson, our very own Poetry Planet. You'll see Diane over there on the pages of Amazing Stories. So please, what a show. Do, do listen. That'd be fantastic. So I think we'll jump straight in with our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Amy's my girl. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is a
0: pleasure to be here with you today, once again looking back into genre history. It is an open and poorly concealed secret that I am a huge Star Trek fan. I have been a Star Trek fan since uh, before birth, actually. I was listening to reruns of Star Trek from the Womb. And once I came out, well, I was interested in Star Trek on the screen and in any other way I could find it. In fact, once I learned to read, I went directly to Star Trek novels. Uh, back in the days when I had to have a novel in one hand and a dictionary in the other in order to teach myself the necessary vocabulary to read a book for adult readers, And so, like many other Star Trek fans, I am really looking forward to Star Trek Into Darkness, the next movie installment of the rebooted Star Trek universe brought to us by J.J. Abrams. And I'm also excited about a book that has come out perfectly timed for this new movie called Star Trek and History, edited by Nancy Regan and published by Wiley & Sons. It came out in March 2013. And the essays collected there are by scholars and critics, and they all deal with, yes, you guessed it, Star Trek and history. And I feel very privileged and pleased that my essay is among those in the collection. My essay combines my lifelong love for and interest in Star Trek Uh, with another interest of mine that is close to my heart and close to my person and also close to my professional work, and that is Native America. My essay is called, If This is the Final Frontier, Where are the Natives? And what I do in this essay is look at how the different incarnations of Star Trek over the different decades have dealt with the question of Native America, because Star Trek has been involved with the Native American question since its inception, but uh, it has dealt with the subject in very different ways depending on when you caught it and at what stage in its development Star Trek was. So what I'd like to do is talk to you a bit about some of the research that I did and what conclusions I drew about Star Trek's long-term relationship with Native America. And I think the subject is quite legitimate for a couple of reasons. First of all, Gene Roddenberry has long been held up as a visionary who used science fiction in order to talk about contemporary events. Of course, he discovered early that he could use the metaphor of science fiction to talk about controversial subjects ripped from the headlines And he'd be able to say things that network censors never would have allowed him to say, speak directly to the issues, uh, the political issues, the social issues that were relevant to the very moment in which these episodes were airing. He would never have been allowed to make the commentary he did straightforwardly. But by using metaphors, by talking about the United States and its allies in the guise of the Federation and the Soviet Union and its allies in the guise of the Klingon Empire, and then a separate planet, contested by both, standing in for Vietnam. Suddenly, he's talking directly about what was happening at the current moment, but it got past the censors. In the same way, he could talk about white-black race relations in the United States and the civil rights movement by talking about alien species that happened to be half white, half black, or half black, half white. And when the audience saw how ludicrous it was that they made a distinction between those two colorings, well, then he was making comment about, again, his particular time and place. So the fact that he used his work to speak to immediately relevant issues invites us to decide how well Star Trek dealt with contemporary Native American issues. The other reason I think this is a very valid way of looking at Star Trek is because Roddenberry pitched the series originally as Wagon Train to the Stars, inviting this sort of Western idea. This automatically then puts... The Federation puts the crew of the Enterprise in the position of the explorer, the colonist, the cowboy, and all other different species out there, the different alien races as the other, uh, including those who are native. And so in that sense, um, this big analogy that that he drew um, is something that we can kind of see play out. And uh, kind of hold him to that original idea of a frontier and what that means. So let's talk a little bit, if you will, about how Star Trek over the years has dealt with Native America. The first iteration of Star Trek, of course, is Star Trek, the original series. And that show addressed the question of Native America specifically in its third season episode, The Paradise Syndrome. I'm assuming some of you somewhere are groaning. Um, I am too deep inside. Uh, This is not one of the best moments for the original series. It failed not only to live up to the generally progressive, far-sighted tone of the rest of the series, but in fact it pretty much represents a regressive step back to stereotypes that even at the time were known to be old and ill-informed. If you don't remember the Paradise Syndrome, that is one where Captain Kirk and his crew discover a village populated by Native Americans on the distant planet Amerind. That is Amerind as in American Indian. Kirk and crew realize that Amerind lies directly in the path of an oncoming asteroid, which will most certainly destroy it. Kirk And company go to the planet, but Kirk loses his memory. And when he appears to the villagers, they identify him as a god. He ends up becoming their medicine chief. And Kirk, being Kirk, of course, both loses his shirt and gets the girl, in this case Miramani. In fact, he marries her, and she becomes pregnant by him. But eventually, the natives discover Kirk isn't a god, believe it or not, and so they turn on him. They run him out of the village and kill Miramani and her unborn child. Fortunately, Spock and McCoy are there to rescue Kirk and take him back to the, quote, civilization of the Enterprise. Gene Roddenberry changed the name of this episode. It was originally by Margaret Armin and called Paleface, But he insisted on the paradise syndrome because he wanted to make it very explicit that he was talking about a theme that has been developed in U.S. literature for some time, goes all the way back to Herman Melville and others. The idea that contemporary man uh, discovers this idyllic, exotic, primitive life And he wants to go there, he wants to find peace there, but sadly he discovers he just can't be content because progress and modernity have turned him into another creature, and he has to go back. So you can see then what's going on here. The Native Americans for Roddenberry are serving the purpose of these noble savages living in this world that know... Um, contemporary, no progressive, no modern person could stomach for long. Now, it's an important aspect of the episode that an advanced group of alien anthropologists, the villagers call them the wise ones, visited Earth centuries earlier, and they took these ancestors from Native America and transplanted them to Amarrind. They're kind of preserved like a living museum exhibit, generation after generation after generation. And this exhibit is, in a way, static. Uh, The natives just remain in the same cultural place, unchanged over time. They don't make discoveries. They don't innovate. They don't develop new ideas. Even though, over the same centuries, all of the races on Earth matured and kind of got on with things like space exploration. Other ethnic characters in other um, Star Trek episodes are shown as making this advanced journey with the rest of humanity. But unfortunately, the only Native Americans that we see are um, in buckskin looking like something out of an idealized portrait of the 17th century. In fact, for Native Americans alone, the future looks a lot like a mythic past. And to add kind of insult to injury, the natives in the Paradise Syndrome don't even get credit for the historical accomplishments of First Nations in the Americas, or for that matter, even just having common sense. In a fascinating study, scholar Sierra Adair Uh, brought a group of American Indian audience members in 2001 together to watch this episode and then to respond to it. Uh, One viewer said, and I'm quoting, Where do you think jerky and popcorn came from? Our ancestors knew how to preserve food long before any white people showed up. People who don't know how to preserve food don't live long. But, of course, in the Star Trek episode, uh, Kirk has to show the natives how to preserve food. What's most interesting, I think, is that at the time, Gene Roddenberry's fact-checkers caught him on some of these points. The Kellum DeForest Research Company advised Roddenberry about issues in his scripts, and they pointed out that he was blending Different Native nations, in fact, Native nations that traditionally warred with each other, and sort of calling for costuming that represented a little bit of everything, um, completely unrelated to one group. In other words, he was just treating a whole continent of people as one big homogenous culture. It was historically inaccurate and just plain bad television. But Roddenberry said he was okay with that, that he was fine with just creating a kind of bland Indian identity, and I've got quotes around that, if you can imagine, that despite its internal inconsistencies, gave the general idea he was going for. And in this way, I think Roddenberry uh, fell short of the high bar that he normally set for uh, so many of his other episodes. By the 1960s, uh, Native Americans across the United States were joining together for uh, self determination to protest the disastrous termination policy that the federal government had followed since the mid 1940s. In the very same year that the Paradise Syndrome aired, 1968, the Indian Civil Rights Act was passed, making many of the guarantees in the U.S. Bill of Rights applicable to Native nations. And in that same year, Activists founded the American Indian Movement, AIM, which would lead controversial and highly visible protests, including the occupation of Alcatraz in 69 to 71, the Trail of Broken Treaties, uh, which shut down the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C. in 1972, the Stand at Wounded Knee in 73, etc. So at the time, there were really important things going on In Native America and between Native America and the U.S. government, you could almost draw a parallel between what was going on with the Red Power and American Indian movement and the Black Power and civil rights movements in the United States. Star Trek has been justly celebrated for the sophistication and sensitivity it showed toward the race issue with regard to the civil rights movement. And of course, the show supplied really powerful role models for many people who were considered to be the other, who were considered to be uh, minorities in the culture. From Lieutenant Uhura, um, there's the great story about Martin Luther King Jr. um, begging Nichelle Nichols to stay in that role because of her importance as a national icon and as a role model. And then, of course, Mr. Sulu and Mr. Chekhov, an Asian-American man and a nationalistic Russian, uh, among others. But when the opportunity existed for a similarly inspirational and encouraging vision of a future for Native Americans, this show's performance was less than stellar, pardon the pun. But this isn't the only time Star Trek deals with the Native American question. And I think it's fascinating to see how Star Trek's approach changes over the years. And since I have reached the end of my time for today's segment, I will pick this up again soon with Star Trek the Animated Series and Star Trek The Next Generation in our next installment of Looking Back into Genre History. Thanks so much for joining me.
3: There you go. I've also I've already got you know parts two and three as well for Amy. So Amy, thank you so much. I just oh, fantastic, excellent. Thank you. Next up is the main fiction, and it's by Chris Willich. Waiting for a me like you. Now Chris Willich is a former librarian from California who recently started writing full time. He's best known for his sword and sorcery character as Gaunt and Bone. Whose first book length adventure, The Scroll of Years, will be published by Pyre Books in September. He also writes science fiction stories such as this one, which first appeared in Fantasy and Science Fiction's November-December issue, 2012. And it is narrated by Jonathan Danz. Jonathan's been on these, these airwaves, as we say, these tubes, a number of times on Starship so far. but if you don't know, I'll give him... Them- Jonathan Danz is a purveyor of digital services by day and a ravenous consumer of printed word by night. 2013 finds him seeking an agent for his own novel, The Cloud Chamber, riding his bike in the woods and being silly with his wife and daughter in the wilds of West, West Virginia. Jonathan, it's it's lovely to have you back on Starship Sofa. It's excellent. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present
1: Waiting for a me like you. By Chris Wilrich. Always when he flipped, feeling like a Kleenex crumpled and tossed on the wind by some n dimensional sicko, Bob remembered the day his namesake uncle caught him blubbering in the woods behind the trailer park. Bob had no recollection what eight year old's anguish had triggered his tears, there was a portfolio of options, or what random fluctuation of nicotine withdrawal had dragged Uncle Robert out to smoke. His mood shifts were like instant stock transactions. But to punish such operatic weakness, his uncle had scooped Bobby up, carried him deeper into the woods, and tossed him face-first into an anthill. Trans-parallel gateways were years away, but Bobby had almost flipped his way back to the bathtub. He'd never forgotten the sensation of ants with all their thousands of little feet shambling over his face, up his ears, down his shirt, worse in their way, than mom's knuckles when she discovered the mess. He'd also never forgotten to hide his weakness. For that alone, Bob thanked Robert. The lesson had served him well in many worlds and was about to do so again. Of course, the flip gate triggered less formication than a real anthill and more nausea. Bob was glad to see they'd streamlined things at the other end. This gate opened directly into an office. In the middle rose a plain beige vomit bucket. Upon a low Corinthian column, white towel draped beside. Bob took advantage of the kind offer. Wiping his mouth, he got his bearings. To one side lay an immaculate white couch and a teak coffee table bearing a glass beside a water pitcher that looked to be hosting a lemon convention. On the other loomed a desk, all shadows and sharp angles, sheltering a thin and fiftyish white man. Behind him, like guards or minders, stood a California flag with additional red, white, and blue stripes defending the border and a U.S. flag that looked corner-heavy with stars. There were no windows. He'd heard the air was bad. Bob staggered onto the couch and leaned back, struggling not to look quite as sick and dizzy as he felt. A bald burly guy with a dragon tattoo on his head hustled in, removed bucket and towel, and softly closed the door behind him. Huh. The help wasn't exactly corporate slick, but each parallel had its quirks. Take your time, Bob, the thin interviewer said, as if they'd already met. Of course, in a way, they had. William Raymond, said the nameplate, the kind of name you'd get with two jabs in a nice American neighborhood's phone book. Did they have phone books here? A triptych of scrubbed, Beaming children gleamed near the nameplate, opposite a modest photo of Raymond posing with Ross Perot in the Oval Office. I'm okay, Bob said, wiping his forehead with a handkerchief, bearing the TransTemp logo, an infinite-seeming regression of tease. We can get started whenever you're ready. If you're certain, there was a smile, benevolent, patrician, on the face of Foxglove Digital's VP of Paraworld Relations. Most paras need a few minutes and and some water. I'll take the water, but I can talk now. Bob poured, thinking, steady hand. Steady hand. So, Bob, Raymond smiled again, this time with pained amusement. It's difficult to act as if we don't know each other. I understand you've had a few of me before. There was a blue straw in the glass, the plastic trying hard to resemble fancy crystal. He drank around it. Your skill set is unusual. There aren't many like you, unless you factor in the multiverse, of course. Right. We've employed three previous Bob Mendezes, and they've all performed superbly. Well, Bob finished off his water, licked his lips. The taste was a little metallic. I'd meant to wait a while before asking, but he flashed his own brochure cover grin. Why do you need me? As if there was a law of conservation of smiles, Raymond's faded. You, the others who've shared your name, have done well with the job, wonderfully even. It's hard enough to do multinational PR. But once you go multi-parallel, it's an art, Bob said. You market in your India or China, you know the culture's different. But in other Americas, say, everything tricks you. You think freedom means the same everywhere but I've seen an America where MLK became president and another one where Al-Qaeda dirt-nuked D.C. In one place, freedom meant diversity in every boardroom. In another, it meant spy camps in every restroom. Raymond's smile was back. I always enjoy it when you get going. Bob raised a hand, coached himself to chuckle. (laughs) Right. You've heard me before. With variations. Well, that's the point. So, you've got a job with high burnout? We sell integrated digital enterprise solutions on 17 parallels, each with their own octopus of regulations. And we're adding new worlds all the time. It is a high stress situation. I'll be blunt. You, our first you, absconded with funds and hid out in an independent Hawaii. Ah, sorry about that. Raymond gave a negligent wave. Then you, I mean our second Bob, committed suicide after visiting the asteroid impact timeline. Bob nodded. He'd been to that place of dark skies and starvation and had been glad the job was quick. Well, I'm almost afraid to ask about the third... me. The third Bob is special, Bob. Are you ready to meet him? Excuse me? I thought you fired. We removed him from his old position, but he's still employed by Foxglove. We thought it might be instructive for you two to meet. I, well, what could he say? Sure. Raymond pressed a button, and the door clicked. Shouldering into the room came the quick-moving, powerful guy who'd removed the vomit bucket. This time, Bob recognized himself. It was himself, after maybe a dozen brawls, a nose realignment, and a few years of weight training. He had a Chinese dragon tattoo coiled around his neck, and sticking its tongue out from the crown of his bald head, he studied Bob with a smile. "'Yeah,' Bald Bob said, "'I can take him.' "'I don't understand,' Bob said, mentally wrapping cool competence around him like a suit. "'This, Bob Mendez,' Raymond continued, voice smooth, fingers rotating a pencil, "'spent an extended tour in recently opened timeline.' In that place, a limited nuclear exchange occurred between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. There, the former U.S. is divided between China, Mexico, and the U.K. We lost Bob somewhere in the Rocky Mountain borderlands. It was my proving ground, Bald Bob said. When we found him three years later, we realized he'd acquired new talents, not entirely unrelated to the old. He is still a master of multi-parallel PR. He just thinks outside the box. Bald Bob cracked his knuckles. Bob, Bland Bob, was conscious of the flab at his middle. He reached for the pitcher. Let me get that for you, Bald Bob said. Sir, lemon? No, thanks. Are you sure? It's my pleasure to serve. No lemon, thanks. Bland Bob took the water. He smelled minty cologne covering old sweat. There was a moment of eye contact that felt like a crunching handshake. "'I'm glad you two are getting along,' Raymond said. "'So then,' Bland Bob said after another sip, "'my counterpart has a new position, and I'm stepping into the old one?' Raymond said, "'Bob, our third Bob, has no official job anymore. His sort of work is best kept undefined. "'Are you quite certain we should be having this conversation?' You wouldn't talk about you behind your back, would you? said Bald Bob with a wink. Bob said, I guess, gentlemen. I'm just uncertain where this is going. Raymond said, I understand, Bob. May we call you Bobby? It would simplify things. Bob swirled his water. I prefer my name. Of course. Raymond set down the pencil, steepled his fingers. Well, the short version is, we don't need a standard interview. Your skills are excellent and well-known. What's also well-known is your instability, beg pardon. Two Bobs have had personality collapses on the job. We've kept tabs on other Bob Mendezes around our neck of the multiverse, and the pattern is similar. Don't take it personally. Genius has its flaws. I am a sword, Bald Bob said, broken but reforged. I'm less of a genius than my counterparts, Bland Bob said, and more stable. That's why Trans Temp likes me. Yes, Bald Bob said, you have potential. The office, our third Bob is part of, Raymond said, could use more public face, something to smooth the path for our more informal operations. The kind of things a multi-parallel corporation has to do. That is the job you are really interviewing for. Bob set his water down, stood up. He kept the straw. It could be a souvenir. I think I should be going. Thanks for your time. Wait, Bob, Raymond said. Perhaps there's a misunderstanding. We're not talking about anything illegal. We're clean from the Interworld Bank's perspective. Bob, the divergence thresholds pushing back deep into the Cold War period, a lot of new parallels are post-nuclear, wild places, like the impact timeline. They require a different approach. So, it's the Old West out there, and what you do isn't technically illegal. But you don't want it public, either. Bob nodded at his counterpart. I wish you well. I'm glad you survived your... troubles. But it's time for me to go. Bob walked to the flip gate, which glowed like a small St. Louis arch. He remembered the days the Sons of McVeigh destroyed the one he knew. Then he heard Raymond flick a switch, and the gate went dark. Goodbye, then, to TransTemp Personnel Solutions, shining offices in that most advanced of all the Tokyos. Goodbye to catching the World Series. Goodbye, Miso Soup. So that's how it's going to be, he said blandly. You owe us a full interview, Raymond said. Gloves off this time. Bob, you can ask your questions now. My questions, Bland Bob asked. No, Raymond said. Bald Bob's first interrogative was a punch to Bland Bob's gut. Bob woofed as aching colors washed his eyes, but some small cynical chunk of his brain had anticipated this, and he jabbed the straw at the other Bob's face. Somehow he scrambled behind Raymond's desk and got an arm around the VP's throat. Let me out of here. You don't understand, Raymond gasped. Come on in, guys, Bald Bob shouted. The door opened and admitted three more Bobs. There was a Bob in a police flak jacket, swirling with gang graffiti, his face half engulfed in old burns. Beside him grinned a Bob in tattered army fatigues, studded with swastikas. The last Bob wore a black business suit with a skull and crossbones tie, and his prosthetic right eye crawled with tiny, inverted flickers of data. He held a syringe in two fingers like a busy broker on a cigarette break. We've been recruiting everywhere. Raymond croaked. The team needs you. We've got the muscle and the brains. We need the face. Let me go, Bob said, rather less hopefully. Aw, Bob, said Bald Bob, you can't leave your family. The four Bobs advanced, looking like they were going to enjoy this. Selected questions and answers from the interview with Mendez, Robert. Iteration, 7. Question. What is love, Bob? Answer. Love is a a feeling of need and connection and... Ah! Question. Love is an illusion other people force on you to make you submissive or to reduce your competitive advantage. What is truth, Bob? Answer. Truth is... objective reality... Question. Truth is illusion. We live in an infinite multiverse where all possibilities, even different natural laws, are made manifest. Any lie you might tell can be true somewhere, so say whatever is useful at the time. What is loyalty, Bob? Answer. Why don't you tell me? Question. Good answer, Bob. Loyalty is the only thing that matters in a multiverse where there is no truth and no love. What do you see in your future? Answer: Loyalty. Bob. Question: Loyalty to whom? Answer: Loyalty to Bob. Question: Good man. Bob poured himself some metallic-tasting water. A couple of drops shook their way to the coffee table. Bald Bob wiped them up with a darkly spattered cloth. The other Bobs flanked Bob on the once-immaculate couch. William Raymond was neither twiddling pencils nor making pyramids of his fingers, but leaning forward in his chair, rather like the hunger-wrestling fans Bob once met in the Asteroid Impact timeline, the ones who'd bet on which contestant they'd get to eat. Was that three years ago, or three hours? He felt as if an ant colony were exploring his face You are the first replicated person we've leveraged into an operative team. We have plans for others. No need to go into the details. Of course not. Bob glanced at the other Bobs. So we are your toadies? You will all be well compensated. That was always true, Bob said. After you rise to a certain point, pay is not the issue. The issue is satisfaction. And counting coup. I'm sure there will be satisfactions. Off-the-record teams can enjoy off-the-record rewards. Sure, getting around the rules is a perk. He was regaining command of his voice, his muscles. He straightened into his boardroom stance. But that comes with enough money anyway. What matters is control. Raymond was frowning. Bob, I thought we'd concluded a successful interview, he said. Oh, we have, Bob said. I like my people. In an infinite multiverse, Bob thought, there were Bobs in his office who would take the billion-to-one shot and win. What was the truth? Why couldn't Big Win Bob be him? I'll take him, Bob said. Beg pardon? William Raymond said, but the other Bobs were paying attention. You may not be looking at the big picture, Bob said, and he wasn't talking to Raymond anymore. Why take orders from anyone else? Somebody who can shove you back into the anthill any time they feel like it. In the end, the big win is loyalty to yourself. Loyalty to Bob. I don't understand, Raymond said. But I do. You see, you've been assuming that I'm the weak Bob, that the other me's here are Bob's honed in the fire. The other Bob's leaned in like wolves, but he knew them. He knew them from deep down. But I'm the Bob who took all those emotions that can break you, and I strangled them, good and early. I'm the one the headhunters trust never to snap. And that's why I'm the one who can bring you in. Bring us in how, Bob? Raymond said. Bob still wasn't talking to him. I haven't done anything wrong, yet. From the agency's point of view, I'd just be rescuing captives. And then we'd be out of this backwater and free to get started. What I know about strangling the soft part of yourself, pretending to be housebroken, I can teach. And you guys, you're just the ones to teach others. Other Bobs, then other teams of individuals. There's a whole multiverse out there we can toughen up. He laughed, tried to make it a little scary. It was easier than he thought. Who are we loyal to? Without waiting for an answer, he launched himself at the desk and splashed the pitcher of water into William Raymond's face. Lemons fled like spooked investors. He leapt over the desk as if he never doubted the other Bobs would back him up. He clamped his hand down on Raymond's as the VP tried to activate something. An alarm, a death ray, who knew? He sneered at the pictures of beaming children. How cute, he said. Bob! Raymond shouted. There was silence, then Bald Bob got Raymond in a mirror of the throat lock Bland Bob had used before. What now, boss? Bald Bob said. Raymond tried to respond, but the result was a wheeze. Call me Robert. The gate. Get it active. Let's flip. Remember, you're all victims until we can talk again privately. I'm so ashamed, Bald Bob said in a whimpering voice. Fake sobs erupted from the other Bobs. We... Raymond managed to gasp.
4: We can offer you more.
1: Robert. It's not what you're offered, Robert said. It's what you take. Now I'm in it for me. Go, Bob. Even as Bald Bob activated the flip gate, Robert was working through some guesses. All across the multiverse, clumps of timelines were discovering each other, and groups of special individuals were finding themselves. Teams of Gandhis and Helen Kellers, or teams of Genghis Khan's and Napoleons. They were out there now. In this neck of the woods, Bob was the first to consolidate himself. Maybe. He'd have to move fast. There was something mathematical about it all. Infinite competition requiring infinite courage. He only had to nod to his other self for bald Bob to snap Raymond's neck. After you, boss. Robert regarded the first corpse of his nameless new career. He saw it, and his other selves, with a feeling of déjà vu. What was always locked inside him was taking form outside. Nice working with you, Bald Bob said, and the others nodded. I was always with you, Robert said to his darker thoughts, and led them through the door to the rest of his life.
3: There you go, don't forget, copyright is Chris's. Don't go do anything silly with it now, you've been warned. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much. And Jonathan, way to go. Uh, excellent, excellent, sir. Next up is an interview with Steve Davidson. Steve is the, the founder, or not, <laughs> not the founder of Amazing Stories, but he's got amazing stories there now. And I kinda, I'm not going to give any more away, just listen to the interview and it, it, it's a remarkable and I'm quite proud of this interview. So I'm very proud to have on the line Steve Davison, who is the now editor-publisher of Amazing Stories. Steve, it's an honor, sir.
4: Well, it's an honor to speak to you. What you guys do is absolutely
3: fantastic. Well, you know, I was thinking about it before we actually kind of came online and got together. i think thinking we must be cut from the same cloth, you know, I mean? because we, you know, hark back to that vintage time of the kind of well, golden age of stories and then trying to bring it into the, you know, bring our kind of love of science fiction into the digital world. I was thinking before I kind of hooked up with you, I think Steve must be just very much like me. Well, I, I'm
4: finding that uh, there are quite a few of us out there. Uh, we, we've got this, uh, I don't know, you might call it a fetish or uh, <laughs> uh, some kind of uh, deep and abiding uh, interest uh, happened uh, early on. Uh, there's no escaping it, so we may as well go with the flow.
3: That's a, that's a really good way of, of looking at it. Tell us then, Steve, about you know your kind of well. Let's talk before amazing stories. Then, have you had any work in kind of publishing science fiction or anything like that?
4: Well, yeah, um, I uh, I got bit by the bug very early on. Uh, my mother used to t- tell me made up stories that involved astronauts and planets and things like that. And uh, I then uh, moved on uh, to um, Fireball XL5 on television and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I guess I was uh, the right age at the right time. We had uh, all the Irwin Allen science fiction shows and a bunch of stuff uh, coming over from uh, England, uh, a lot of great movies around that time frame uh and um i just uh, i just fell right into it um i attended the first uh, star trek convention i was a big star trek fan um i moved from that to uh, regular conventions after realizing that um i did not want to dress up like captain kirk um <laughs> <laughs> uh i went to uh, when i went to college Um, I was uh, an English major, and I started working on the uh, college paper, doing uh, movie reviews, mostly science fiction. Um, I uh, briefly started a uh, literary magazine at the school, um, and I obtained a grant from the school to do a uh, fanzine, uh, which was a um, semi-prosine, the biggest claim to fame that it has. I think it's probably one of the few fanzines, if not the only one that uh, took a regular feature from a uh, professional magazine and continued it in a fanzine when the uh, ProMag failed. That was uh, Ginger Buchanan's uh, column on fandom that had started running in Hartwell's uh, Cosmos, and when Cosmos folded, uh, it moved over to uh, my semi prozine contact. Um, And I wrote, and I sent in stories and collected my rejection slips uh, like so many others. And uh, in late 83, I got uh, uh, distracted, I guess you'd have to say, um, by the uh, then uh, new sport of paintball. Uh, and I found a very uh, ready and hungry uh, audience for my writing over there, and I spent uh, 25 years fussing around in the paintball industry uh, and uh, just in 2006 or so decided that I had had enough of that and uh, made a move back into uh, science fiction fandom, attended a few conventions and started up a blog called The uh, Crotch the Old Fan. And that pretty much brings us up to uh, the the happy moment of uh, obtaining the trademarks for Amazing.
3: I mean, this is the kind of... the uh, the. Not, I'm not saying pivotal, but the one that kind of... Because I'd heard of your blog, you know, the crotchety one, and then all of a sudden the kind of news swept through that you'd acquired amazing stories. Tell us how that happened then.
4: Well, I uh, was working in the paintball industry and uh, managing a uh, intellectual property uh, department for um, a research and development company, um, we did uh, paintball and uh, non-lethal weapon systems and all kinds of nifty stuff like that. Um, and one of the things that, uh, it was a small company, so one of the things that I was in charge of was intellectual property strategy um, and how to compete with the big boys with the small portfolio that we had. Um, and one of the regular tasks that I had to do was to go through the uh, uh, new trademark applications and see if there was anything that might be impacting us down the road uh... and that's an extremely boring activity so i uh... decided that in order to keep my interest up i would look up trademarks that were of interest to me to see what their status was and like things like uh, planet stories and cosmos and astounding and et cetera et cetera and uh... My first love for the magazines was amazing. It was the first one that I ever picked up, um, and uh, so I regularly checked that. And uh, one day, uh, just in the normal course of events, so I decided to pop on over and see what its status was. And it said that it was dead, meaning that uh, the trademark had lapsed, it had been abandoned, whatever. Uh, and I, I literally, it's one of those cases where I. So much did not believe my own eyes that I called my wife over to take a look at the screen and read out loud to me what it actually said. Uh, And it was, in fact, dead. Uh, I went and I checked and double-checked. And uh, then my wife and I sat down and had uh, quite a long number of uh, discussions about uh, whether it was worthwhile to spend the money to uh, apply for it or not. And uh, ultimately, we figured uh, one way or another, um, we'd get something out of it, uh, and, uh, put the application in.
3: I mean, I, I don't uh, want to kind of talk about money, Steve, you know, mm-hmm. but is it, was it a, enough, like you say, to, to sit down with your wife? Cause I've had a few of them conversations of late. So it, are we talking, you know, a, a quite a, a dint in your finances?
4: Well, it, 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 for us at the time, uh, it represented a, a, a decent amount of money, um, uh, close to, uh, I think all well told probably about 1500 bucks and that's 1500 bucks on a flyer. So, you know, it does, uh, I, I think it, it warrants a little bit of discussion on, unless you have more than enough zeros at the end of your bank account that $1,500 doesn't really bother you. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we've, I've, we both figured, uh, she was not as, uh, um, familiar with the history of the magazine uh, as I was, uh, and she's not as much into science fiction as I am, uh, but uh, she could see the uh, the historic value to it. Uh, and we both reasoned that uh, ultimately if worse came to worse we'd probably find somebody who would be interested in picking it up from us uh, and we'd be able to uh, get our investment back if, if nothing else plus she must so. have
3: she must have seen like the total glee in your eyes when you discovered this oh. <laughs> <laughs> well go on then you can <laughs> yeah
4: yeah she yeah and um you know like uh i i suppose it's like any other relationship where uh, people have uh, different interests we 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 both respect each other's interests and uh uh, are willing to go a uh, fairly uh, long way to accommodate them. And uh, I can't uh, I can't thank her enough for uh, being understanding, because if she had said no, it, it wouldn't have happened. Um, and I'd, I'd still be staring at the uh, unregistered uh, trademark.
3: <laughs> you know, it's I think, again, you're hitting nails on the head. You, know, you get all little kind of... Babies out there in the open, we need, we need our kind of, you know, support of families. And they say my wife as well. Do you know what I mean? It's just, I've been doing it, I guess, since 2006 there. It just wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the support of, you know, our good lady folks. So I think hats off to, to them.
4: Absolutely. Well, you know, we uh, we spent about three years online. I, I met her through Paintball. She was production manager for one of the newspapers that I wrote for. And, uh We spent uh, about three years online before uh, deciding to uh, get together, and uh, the objective of that online period uh, was to strip away everything and get to know each other so well that um, if it was going to work, it would really work for us, And, and it has, you know
3: i tell you so, what, you know, let's just say then, you've come up then, Steve, you've persuaded your wife to kind of hand yep. over the hard, you know, family cash. Did you know what you were going to do with the name at, straight away? Did you think, well, I'll just, I'll carry on? Or did you think well, it, it'll be a good kind of kudos, you know, just to say I've got the, the trademark, this is mine now?
4: Yep. Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I actually went through a little bit of that and I, I posted, I think it was on the on the blog, uh, you know, words to the effect of mine, mine, mine. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm sure I would yeah. as well.
4: <laughs> yeah. Um, now, the interesting thing is that this entire process with Amazing has been so serendipitous uh, that I really pretty much have just stood back and let things happen. Um, and, and as that continued to occur, um, that's become a, a part and parcel of, of how I've been handling everything. Because what actually happened was I put the application in, and there was apparently a prior application for the same name for nonfiction travel books. Uh, I can see where the name would be appropriate for nonfiction travel books. Uh, but, uh, my arguments with the trademark office that, uh, nonfiction and fiction are two easily discernible, um, things, uh, with falling on deaf ears, even though they themselves have classifications for these different things. So I was forced to wait, and I've also benefited from, uh, a great attorney, um, who, uh, when I spoke to him about this, said, "Well, look, you've got two options. You can either abandon your application, in which case I'm out the money and the possibility of getting the uh, the mark, uh, or I can sit and wait for the process to go through, because the vast majority of times uh, trademark applications are abandoned or disallowed for one reason or another, uh, and I would be very next in queue if the current application uh, for the mark uh, uh, was abandoned as well. Uh, That happened in uh, mid-2011. The company that had applied for the travel books um, dropped it. Uh, I got a letter from the trademark office saying, uh, your mark is now going to be in the principal registry for uh, opposition, which was... uh, several months of nail biting to see if anybody was going to write in and say, no, you can't, uh, we don't want you to have that because we've been using it, et cetera, et cetera. And then it was finally, uh, given a mark. Now I had three some odd years to sit and think and plan about what I was going to do with the magazine. And at the time, the, the things that were personally concerning me about publishing and, uh, the magazine end of the industry and whatnot was that the short story form seems to be dying at the very least in terms of uh, the markets that were available to it. Um, And I took a look at why I thought that was and what somebody might be able to do with something online. And the conclusion that I came to was essentially that the market for science fiction was not large enough as it stood at the time and still pretty much stands now, to be sustainable in terms of uh, a fiction publication that was in print and online and doing all the things that it would need to do. And that led me to the conclusion that uh, in, in order to have something that was going to provide a sustainable market that would pay Uh, At least the minimum CIFLA qualifying rates, if not better rates, uh, help promote these authors and the the genre itself, Uh, it would need to find a way to expand the market that it was appealing to because without a market, there's no advertisers, and without advertisers, you're left with subscriptions, and people going online don't want to hear from subscriptions. So you're left with doing it out of pocket uh, at a loss, and that's just not sustainable. So,
3: I was going to say. So the the big question is how how, how does it work?
4: Well, we're in the beginning phases of, of a process here with Amazing, uh, and the, the the process is to build essentially. Uh, a social network for fans of genre fiction, uh, and the way that I figured would be most attractive to do that would be to start as a as a blog that offered content that would be in, of interest to members of the different fanish constituencies: those who are into horror, fantasy, science fiction, military SF, fanzine publishing, the pulps the comics to anime etc cetera, etc cetera, et cetera. and if i can build the audience and the viewership online which is demonstrable to investors and advertisers and say hey look here i have this market that's into these specific things which by the way happens to be the dominant forms of your culture right now you might want to think about advertising to these people because this is your core audience and if that transpires, then there will be more than enough money to uh, support the fiction side of the publication.
3: So is that where we are now? We're kind of built basically with the, the, the website. We've got, got a blog there. Are, are you putting out stories as well, Steve? Well, we're,
4: we're, we're working. We're edging into it. You know, I, I have a couple of, of conflicting issues going on uh, one is everybody is, is arm twisting me to start printing fiction now um, and I could and then in a month I'd have no money <laughs> Go on, so, so the, the 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 desire my desire for you know I Amazing has died three times now uh, and I don't want it to die again I want it to be continuing through its hundredth anniversary in 2026 and, and well beyond. Um, so I'm, I'm holding everybody back at the gate and I'm trying to find ways to accommodate that desire for fiction uh, when we're not really positioned for it right quite yet. Um, so among other things uh, that have been happening, I mentioned the serendipity. Um, The name itself has drawn so many people in. And I'd like to think that the description that I've given them, the outline of the plan that I've given those people who are participating helped convince them that that this was something that might work. But really, I have to say that it's the history of the magazine and the reverence which so many fans have for the name uh, that's the driving force at this point in time. I have so many great people uh... contributing um, and among them um, david gerald uh... Who, uh is the award-winning author of like uh... novels like the martian child and uh, war with the tour series and of course we can't forget uh... the uh, trouble with trouble star trek episode um, he apparently uh... written a, a mashup comic script, uh... for somebody else who then uh... foolishly uh decided not to accept it uh, because it was a couple of days late. Uh, and uh, here, here's where, uh, yes, the Internet is a marvelous thing. Um, I was on uh, Facebook when uh, David was uh, complaining um, about some uh, a fan making a special request and then refusing to accept that special request, which is something I think that hardly any of us will ever understand why they did that. Um And uh, I sent him a message saying, listen, uh, you know, if you're not doing anything with it, uh, I'd be happy to uh, take a look at the script and uh, possibly run it on Amazing. Uh, And uh, David uh, accepted, sent me the script. It's absolutely hilarious. It's a mashup of Star Trek and Doctor Who and several other uh, well-known science fiction properties. Uh, We found an artist uh, named Troy Boyle. Uh, who's uh, finished? Just finished the pencilings, and uh, they're now in for coloring and lettering and whatnot. And uh, we'll be running that as our first piece of fiction. It will be the full comic, and uh, publishing a uh, limited edition print uh, version.
3: That's what I was uh, going. That's what I was going to ask you there. It's, it's, so it is coming out in print. It will be in
4: print, limited edition, probably 500 copies. Depending on how that goes, we may then go ahead and print a non limited edition uh and uh, we're discussing um also publishing it as like a, uh, a an electronic comic um thing as well but it'll be on the website um freely accessible uh without you know membership or pay or or anything like that um which will be the same way that we're going to be treating fiction in the future um you don't have to have a membership. You don't have to have a subscription.
3: Because uh, I see on your on your site there now you've got members. So what does what does a, well, me- a member get?
4: I, I'm I'm trying not to get into too much detail here with with the plan. Um, <laughs> not not to hide anything, but I don't want to bore people. Um, the uh, the ultimate realization of this will be that. Uh, a member will be able to participate in all of the social uh, activities on the site, in addition to being able to read the fiction and read the blog. You know, the the blog is there because of the recognition that uh, I think that uh, an online publication has to have daily content, just like a, like a successful blog really needs to be posting at least one thing a day. Uh, this magazine needs to be having something every day. And what I finally realized was that I could separate the, the blog portion of the publication from the fiction portion of the publication and that the two will run side by side with each other when everything is fully realized. But we're starting with this blog thing right now. So what what people will get as a member, um, well, we have visitors, members, and subscribers. Those are the three levels. A visitor will be able to read the blog post will be able to read the fiction, uh, but will not be able to participate in any of the social activity that's going on, Uh, leaving comments, uh, forming a group, uh, having their own page, etc., etc. Members will be able to participate in all of that kinds of stuff, and what we have coming in the future is a customizable um, uh, member homepage, page. Uh, unlike uh, Facebook and a lot of these other social networks where you're locked into the form of presentation, the way that the screen appears to you. uh, I've heard a lot, a lot of complaints about that. And I also know that because I'm going after such a diverse audience, uh, there are going to be things that a member uh, is not going to be at all interested in and doesn't want to have it shoved in their face every day that they go to the site. So there's going to be this customizable user interface uh, where you can select the different things that will appear on your home screen. Uh, Subscribers uh, will get things like um, a discount on anything in the store that we sell. Uh, So the print versions of the magazines, t-shirts, mouse pads, key fogs the whole nine yards. Um, There will be uh, special subscriber uh, forums Uh, or or member areas for private discussion. Uh, When we do, for example, an interview, uh, the subscribers will be invited to submit uh, questions for the interview, a higher participatory level, uh, that kind of thing. Um, So it's designed so that the content is accessible to anybody. Uh, And then if you want more, subscribers also Uh, will be able to view the site on on any of their devices. It'll be transportable to their mobile and their tablet and their phone and all that other kinds of stuff.
3: Well, listen, Steve, I just wish you all the best. Do you know what I mean? It's just to... To reincarnate that and to keep it going. And what I'll tell you, what I really like is when I was looking over the site, it's not like, or well, I don't think it is, you're not starting from day one again, you're carrying on with the volume numbers, so you're just picking off where the last episode finished or the last one finished. Is that right?
4: Yes, I, I, I believe, and, and you know, like you, I, I like the old stuff. I came up with a lot of the older stuff. Um, but I in a lot of other facets of my life also, I've learned the value of knowing and understanding your historical roots. Uh, and I think that to a literature that is self-referential as much as science fiction is, it needs to, to maintain and keep open that connection to everything that has gone before. Um, you know, one of the things that I point out to some of the new people, uh, is that there wasn't that much from 1926 until the 90s. There really wasn't all that much science fiction. And it's, it's, it is possible to go back and acquaint yourself with the vast majority of those materials. And if you're planning on writing, uh, it will inform your writing so much. It, it's, it's unbelievable. And if you're only into reading... Uh, you'll be able to see the evolution of the genre and where some of these ideas come from and how different people have played with them. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's really changing, but for a number of years there, whenever I try and read some of these self-published science fiction novels, it's like uh, I'm going, uh, Poole Anderson wrote this, you know, 30 years ago, and Isaac Asimov wrote this 50 years ago, and, and it says there's nothing new under the sun kind of a thing. And ultimately, it all comes down to an unfamiliarity with the, with the genre. So I felt that it was important to make sure that everybody recognized that while it is a totally new effort, uh, I haven't acquired anything from any of the previous uh, versions of the magazine, uh, that we're going to act as if and treat it as if it's a continuation of the original publication. Uh, even to the point of the company that's behind everything is the Experimenter publishing company, which was Gernsback's original uh, publishing company for the magazine.
3: Well, Steve, what can I say? You know what I mean? Just good luck in in this venture. It's just I think everyone in the kind of in this genre industry kind of is behind you. Do you know what I mean? It's just like. It's a name that's synonymous with what we love, do you know what I mean? So if we can keep that going, that would just be fantastic. Steve, it's been lovely having you on board Starship's Over. Thank you so much.
4: Well, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity, and uh, you guys too. I mean, you know, the, the stuff that the SOFA is doing is, uh, is just fantastic, and I hope that uh, maybe in the future we can find some way to uh, uh, synergize
3: <laughs> I know that would, that would be lovely. Yes, it certainly would because that's um, I think that's how you you kind of you've got to now, do you know what I mean? It's one of them things. It's you've got to kind of weave your magic through everybody and it's you know joining up forces would be fantastic. Steve, yep. look after yourself, sir, and I will certainly keep in touch.
4: And you too, and again, thank you very much. <laughs>
3: There you go. Like I said, I've put links on to everyone. Please pop over to Steve's site and, you know, go and see Chris with the story and Amy as well. Links are there. That is this week's show. Don't forget, if you want to come over and see Larry Niven, the guy who gives ring Ringworlds, you know, Jerry Purnell, Morton God's Eye with Niven and Greg Benford. Timescape, for God's sake, man. These are the giants of science fiction. I'd love to see you there. Like I say, we now have it all in video and... Help us, please, because the work I'm putting in trying to get on video for this webinar is just kind of staggering. Oh, man. And I, I'll give you a little insight. It's just, when you're emailing them, you know, they come back with like three-word emails. Can't make that. And and that, you know what I mean? I write this in, right? Right, I need you to do this, do this, do that. If you just sort out there, and then you'll be able to tell them, can't do that. Not that time. And it's like, oh, God so it will be fun and games on the 21st of april but i would love to see you there until next week just like to say good night from me
4: will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal can they win through with Escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment. Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Social Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for Air Airlock will be
2: opened in three, two, one. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.